Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinberger Chapter 5a Psychological Warfare in World War One, Part 1 World War I saw psychological warfare transformed from an incidental to a major military instrument, and later it was even called the weapon which won the war. The story spread since the Germans liked to imagine that they had been talked out of winning, and since ex-propagandists among the Allies enjoyed thinking that their own cleverness had been decisive, when even the tremendous violence of trench warfare had produced nothing more than a stalemate. If psychological warfare is considered in the broad sense, it seems plain that it was among the decisive weapons of 1914 to 1918. The political decency of the Allies, the appeal of President Wilson's 14 points, the patent obsolescence of the Kaiser and what he stood for, the resurgence of Polish, Baltic, Finnish, Czechoslovak, and South Slav nationalisms, all these played a real part in making Germany surrender in 1918. More real than the role of guns, men, ships, planes, tanks? This cannot be answered. It is like asking of a long-distance runner whether his heart, lungs, legs, or head contributed most to his success. Since war is waged by and against all parts of the human personality, physical condition, skills, intelligence, emotions, and so on, it is impossible to distinguish between the performance of one kind of weapon and the other in the attainment of a goal itself complex, governmental surrender. Only a weapon which left no enemy survivors could claim for itself undisputed primacy and victory. Propaganda came to prominence in war because the nations involved had made mass communications part of their civilian lives. The appearance of huge newspapers, systematic advertising, calculated political publicity, and opinion manipulation in other forms made it inevitable that skills which developed in civilian life should be transferred to the military. In general, the psychological warfare efforts of each belligerent were the direct equivalent of his peacetime non-political propaganda facilities. By way of exception, the peculiar genius of the Bolshevik leaders stimulated a propaganda effort disproportionate to the facilities, either of personnel or material, to be found in pre-1914 Russia. Nations rarely change their basic character in time of war. When war starts, it is usually too late to re-educate generations already grown up, teach them wholly new skills, or develop administrative or operational procedures unknown in peacetime life. Sometimes, by great effort, a nation can transform a small, available cadre into large, new, and effective units on the political, military, economic, or social fronts. Even then, the character of the war effort will be colored and influenced by the experience of the men undertaking it. The British had, in 1914, one of the world's finest news systems, a highly sophisticated press, and extensive experience in international communication for technical and commercial purposes, notably the undersea cable system and they turned these to war use with considerable smoothness. The Germans had a far more regimented press, and a more limited network of commercial and technical connections. The British, furthermore, had a diplomatic and consular service of superb quality. Comparable German services included a much higher proportion of bunglers and enthusiasts. From the very beginning, the British had the lead. They nailed German propaganda as propaganda, while circulating their own as news, cultural relations, or literature. The Germans who boasted that they were a cultured people had their naivete rewarded when the British let the German word Kultur become a synonym for boorish pedantic arrogance. The Germans had the awful habit of putting many of their own unattractive emotions into words, and their even more ruinous habit of then printing the words. In many instances, the British simply let the Germans think up braggadocio or vengeful phrases, then circulated the German phrases to the world. The English language was permanently enriched by some of these. Strafe comes from the German plea that God strafe, punish England. The 
The actual Hymn of Hate was originally a song made up by Germans for Germans. The word Hun was applied to the German army by Kaiser Wilhelm himself, and so on. Furthermore, the Germans created in their press and information services a condition of bureaucratic snafu which has rarely been excelled in any war. National character certainly worked out its automatic vengeances in World War I. The American psychological warfare effort of 1917 to 1919 also drew heavily on familiar skills. The American press, second only to that of the British at the time, the church, YMCA, and Chautauqua groups, and the wealth of private clubs which flourish under our liberal system of laws and usages. Other nationalities made efforts similarly in keeping with their peacetime facilities. The Japanese were adroit, but even at that time confused by the mix-up of trying to be a civilized power, but simultaneously expansionist. The French showed high professional skill in adapting their military and diplomatic personnel to propaganda tasks. France's position as battleground ensured her of the rage of her own people and the sympathy of neutrals, giving propaganda from Paris a hearing. The Chinese, though undergoing the downfall of the Yuan Shikai dictatorship and lapsing into chaos, maintained an impeccable diplomatic front and played a weak hand for everything it was worth. They had their private quasi-war with the Japanese in 1915. That they did so while putting the blame for Allied disunity squarely on the Japanese where it belonged is to their credit. The weight of the propaganda war, as of the material war, fell on its prime contestants, Britain, Germany, and the United States. The private and revolutionary groups which emerged as the revolutionary governments played a vigorous part because they had few other functions to distract their attention. The Republic of Czechoslovakia got its start in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1918 and fought psychological warfare from the instant it took form. Not till later did it assume the weightier and more expensive responsibilities of ruling and warring. The British Effort In World War I, the British made most of the mistakes and learned most of the lessons which the Americans were to make and learn in World War II. The British Foreign Office formed a War Propaganda Bureau in 1914, but a great deal of the effort was done by private facilities, patriotic associations, or by lowering political and military echelons of the government and armed forces, and without coordination. Things became so confused that at the midpoint of the war, the British organized a Department of Information with Colonel John Buchan at its head. Buchan will be remembered by all adventure lovers as author of The 39 Steps, The Courts of the Morning, and other first-class thrillers. He was also made a peer under the style Lord Tweedsmark, and became a popular Governor-General of Canada. Buchan did not always get along with the committee which floated above him, telling him how to run his business. The British, like the Germans, had immense organizational difficulties. The British ended up by inventing a distinction of roles, thus they finished World War I with two separate propaganda agencies, the Ministry of Information under Lord Beaverbrook, with Colonel Buchan as Director of Intelligence, carried on civilian psychological warfare outside Britain. The National War Aims Committee carried on civilian psychological warfare within Britain. Military psychological warfare was carried on by military and civilian agencies both. The British required five years of honest effort, bitter wrangling, and positive political invention in order to devise a psychological warfare system sufficient to meet the needs of a great power at war. They did not let their administrative difficulties prevent their conduct of correct, poised, and highly moral propaganda, nor impede their use of plentiful funds and high ingenuity in getting their propaganda across. Footnote. On World War I, see Harold Laswell's Propaganda Technique in the World War, previously cited. George Creel's How We Advertised America, New York and London, 1920, the very title of which is an indication of its chief shortcoming. 
Lieutenant Colonel W. Nikolai, Nachrichtendienstpresse und Volkstümer im Weltkrieg, Berlin 1920, by the German General Staff Officer chiefly responsible for staff work and propaganda and public opinion, a very thoughtful, though prejudiced book. Hebert Blackenhorn's enjoyable little classic, Adventures in Propaganda, Boston 1919, Blackenhorn was the only American officer to see field service in propaganda in both wars, as a captain in one and a lieutenant colonel in two. And George C. Brunson's scholarly monograph, Allied Propaganda and the Collapse of the German Empire in 1918, Stanford 1938. Readers desiring further references should consult the bibliographies by Laswell, Casey, and Smith cited above. End footnote. The British set the pace in coordinating political warfare with news propaganda, and in effecting workable liaison between national policymakers and operational and public relations chiefs of the armed services. It is not likely that, even in World War II, the Americans, within the looser, younger, bigger framework of our more compendious government, achieved as good results in terms of timing. State, War, Navy, OWI, OSS, Treasury, timing of related events or news items was obtained through most of World War II in the following manner. The federal agency affected did whatever it was going to do anyhow, and other federal agencies took notice after the event, initiating their related actions, if any were feasible, then and only then. The British sought to get around this in World War I by correlating their policy toward various countries with their policy involving different departments. They were not totally successful, but they learned a lot. The net product of their propaganda was, for most of its purposes, superb. The German Failure in Propaganda German writers after World War I sometimes attributed the superiority of the British in propaganda to the innate fiendishness of Britishers, as contrasted with the gullible purity of Germans. The psychoneurotic Nancom, who made himself famous to the world's cost, did not make this mistake. In Mein Kampf, Hitler stated categorically that the British had understood the professional touch in propaganda, while the Germans had not. Hitler's contempt for the masses was shown in his explicit statement of their inattentiveness, their poor response to formal logic, their affirmative reaction to simple one-sided reiteration. He said, In England, propaganda was a weapon of the first class, while with us it was a sop to unemployed politicians. German nationalists of whatever stripe found themselves in accord when they blamed their military defeat on the enemy's use of propaganda. They thus succeeded in maintaining the myth, already sedulously inculcated for two centuries, that the German army could not be beaten in the field. The extremists and crackpots among them went on to develop the stab-in-the-back theory that an unbeaten Germany was betrayed from within by Jews, socialists, and democratic people. The mutually exclusive alternatives, namely that either Allied propaganda was fiendishly good and the Germans merely innocent victims, or else that Allied propaganda was ineffectual and the anti-war sentiment a purely German development, did not keep the Hitlerites from exploiting both alibis simultaneously. The post-war period of the 1920s saw, therefore, the curious spectacle of the Germans lauding American psychological warfare and counting it as a major factor of defeat, while the Americans naturally emphasized the fighting record of American troops. As for Kaiserist propaganda, it started out with the twin curses of amateurishness and bureaucracy, each of them crippling but deadly when paired. German writers and scholars ran wild in 1914 and 1915 in trying to put the blame on the Allies. Amateurish in public relations, they succeeded in arousing a tremendous amount of antagonism. They were handicapped by the ponderosity of the German imperial government, by the intervention of persons unfamiliar with news or advertising, at that time the most obvious sources of civilian propaganda personnel, 
and by a military stodginess which made German press communiques infuriating even to anti-British readers. Overseas propaganda developed through poorly secured clandestine channels and was mixed up with espionage and sabotage personnel. Inescapable breaks gave all German agents a bad name. George Sylvester Führich, who has enjoyed the odd distinction of being our most vocal pro-German sympathizer in both wars with Germany, later wrote a naive but revealing account of his operations under the title Spreading Germs of Hate, lost in 1930. No British information officer was guilty, even after the war, of a comparable breach of taste. Europe praises the British for their sign fraud and skill. Coming from him, the praise is more than deserved. More seriously, German propaganda lacked both organization and moral drive. Lieutenant Colonel Nikolai, the Imperial German General Staff Officer responsible, puts part of the blame on the German press and on the press officers of the Army and the Reich. Quote, In fact, the enemy remained virtually untouched by any kind of German propaganda. This reproach falls against the press, it would seem, as well as on the responsible officials. Internationally minded papers themselves failed to cooperate, yet it was precisely these which were circulated and esteemed abroad. Newspapers with other pro-militarist editorial policies, failing to get leadership from the government, could not aim at any unified effect. Instead, the goal of the governmental press leadership remained a thoroughly negative one, to prevent the press from doing harm to national policy. End quote. Without developing his theme into systematic doctrine for psychological warfare, the German colonel stated the basic defect of World War I from the German point of view. Writing in 1920, he went on to say, quote, The enemy alleges simply to have copied our frontline propaganda when he initiated his. In so doing, he is guilty of a deliberate untruth, made for the sake of removing the moral blot which is attached to his victory. Nikolai could not overcome the supposition that propaganda was a dirty and unsoldierly device, and that it was much more honorable for armies to exchange loss of life than to save men on both sides by talking the enemy into surrendering. But he went on to the real point at issue. Quote, Furthermore, it was not moralistic misgivings which kept us from applying to the enemy front lines a propaganda campaign as successful as theirs, but very sober practical obstacles. There were available to us none of the psychological points of attack at which propaganda would have been effective against the enemy forces, points such as the enemy found in our own domestic conditions. What was lacking was political propaganda as precursor of military. What the Germans failed to learn in World War I, they later learned and applied in World War II. The German imperial government started in 1914 with a defiant assurance of its own power. Power was not sought among the masses, so far as Kaiser Wilhelm was concerned. One inherited it from one's ancestors, along with an army, and the masses had better keep their noses out of it. The Hitlerite German government of 1939 began its world war only after two decades of shrewd, conscienceless, bitter domestic propaganda. Hitlerism had come to power by first wooing and then bullying the common man, and the Nazi chiefs, in their strategy of terror, or, quote, warfare psychologically waged, unquote, subsequently applied the same tactics to the international community. Hitler conquered Europe with these tactics. He started with flattery, made scenes, and ended with cold brutality. These were the skills of the urban slum. The Creel Committee The fabulous American propaganda of which the Germans expressed such dread was the work of two agencies. The civilian agency was the Committee on Public Information, universally known as the Creel Committee after its chairman, Mr. George Creel. The military agency was the Propaganda Section, or Psychologic Section, G2D, General Headquarters, American Expeditionary Forces, under Captain Heber Blankenhorn. 
The Creole Committee had the superlative advantage of possessing a chief who enjoyed the confidence of the president, and whose participation in national policy was on a high enough level to give propaganda coordination to other governmental policies on a basis of equality. Creole himself considered the task to be one of advertising, and he organized his committee with extreme looseness, expanding it rapidly. Although his total gross budget for the war was only a fraction of OWI's budgets in World War II, he systematized most of the publicity activities then available. News services were maintained by means of a news bureau in Washington that fed material to the commercial press and processed other material to publicity missions abroad. Heavy emphasis was placed on the home audience, for Creel's mission covered all phases of propaganda work. Sections were set up for posters, advertising, four-minute men, volunteer local speakers in all American communities, films, American minority groups, and the foreign language press, women's organizations, information bureaus, syndicated features, and cartoons. The young but already large American motion picture industry was made a channel whereby American propaganda movies went to both the United States and overseas audiences. In one instance, Creel got the American producers to threaten Swiss exhibitors with a boycott unless they showed American propaganda film along with the features. Missions were sent to France, England, Italy, Switzerland, Holland, Spain, Scandinavia, Mexico, and other Latin American countries, China, and Russia. It was not considered necessary to send American propagandists to Japan in World War I. The Japanese were given the American propaganda file and were asked to use it. They said they would. The Creole Committee was run in simple, almost chaotic fashion. Agencies proliferated whenever a new idea turned up. The basic concept was that of domestic American agitation as practiced commercially through advertising and socially through the civic clubs. The war propaganda left a rather bad taste in the mouth of many Americans, and the boisterous joviality of the arousers probably produced negative attitudes which encouraged pacifism and isolationism in the post-war years. The purely technical side of the work was done well, but at the terrible cost of overshooting national commitments. America emerged from the war disappointed at home and discredited abroad, so far as the heated propaganda of making the world safe for democracy was concerned. A more modest, more calculated national propaganda effort would have helped forestall those attitudes which in turn made World War II possible. Creel and his fellow workers did not remember that beyond every war there lies a peace, in its own way as grim and difficult as war. They did not understand that no war is the last war, that leeway must be left for propaganda to be effective again. They said that World War I would be the last of all wars. Perhaps they believed it themselves. End of section 8.